0: Northwest, a podcast all about the history and the paranormal of the Pacific Northwest. Join me as I tell stories of this great region, the history, the people who live here, and those who may have never left. Happy episode nine! We're still in the midst of winter, and I am eager for spring and warmer temperatures. I guess I'll just have to pretend with my sweaters and all of my tea. This episode is a few days late, and I apologize as school, which is my day job, has been a bit crazy. Um, anyway, we are traveling up north, but not too far north back to Vancouver, British Columbia. We have visited Vancouver before, but there are a ton of places in that city with paranormal activity. And most of my BC list lays within Vancouver. And I will apologize in advance. My cat is very active right now. This is normally his pre when I go to bed nap time and he's normally asleep but he is right next to me and he is playing so any background noises or meows are my actual cat not a gift's cat. The last time we visited Vancouver was the Langham Court Theater which was kind of a bust in terms of paranormal activity. Sorry I still want to visit someday, but it maybe I won't see any ghosts. Um, But that was okay, because that did let us take a little bit of an international theater tour. However, our location today is most definitely active in terms of the paranormal. Today, we are traveling to Highcroft Manor in Vancouver. So grab your sweater, your blanket, and your warm beverage of choice, and let's get started. So let's start with the history of Highcroft Manor. Highcroft Manor went into construction in 1907 and was completed in 1911. The Palatial Manor was built by Canadian General Alexander Duncan McRae. The manor was built on a hill encompassing five and a half acres. Once completed, it totaled 30 rooms. The manor itself consists of three stories built in the classic Edwardian style with columns that seem to reach up to the sky. There's also a swimming pool, stables, a teahouse, and an Italian garden. The manor held legendary parties throughout the early part of the 20th century, the most famous of which became the New Year's Masquerade Ball. Imagine the Great Gatsby-style parties. That was the level of parties McRae and his wife Blanche were throwing. These parties included visiting royalty, politicians, and the upper echelons of Vancouver society. Highcroft Manor is situated in the Shaughnessy neighborhood of Vancouver. The older northern section of the neighborhood is called First Shaughnessy, where Highcroft Manor sits. First Shaughnessy is considered quite prestigious with many historical homes. Nearly 52% of the homes in the neighborhood were built prior to World War II. Today, the average home price in this neighborhood is $2.89 million. And that is during the 2022 housing market. During World War II, McRae donated the manor to the federal government to be used as a veteran's hospital during the war. The manor was used as a hospital for 18 years. The University Women's Club purchased the manor in 1962 and still occupies it today. There are rumors of secret tunnels underneath the manor that connected the various buildings of the estate. These tunnels would have proven invaluable during Prohibition and those infamous parties held there. Let's take it back a little bit and look at General McRae. Born in Ontario, Canada in 1874, Alexander Duncan McRae was raised on a farm. At the age of 18, he traveled to Minnesota to work for his cousins, who had become successful in baking. By the age of 25, he had a net worth of $50,000, or approximately $1.6 million today. McRae began investing with his earnings, including investing in a rock quarry. On February 23, 1900, McRae married Blanche Latimer Howe. Blanche's father was wealthy from the forest industry. As prices in Minnesota began to increase, McRae and his cousins took a chance on Canada and the land there being profitable. In 1902, the group began purchasing sections of land between Regina and Saskatchewan, ultimately totaling about five million acres. Much of this land was purchased through land grants with the stipulation that McRae and his partners actively seek settlers for the land. For my Americans listening to this, or even international listeners, this is kind of the same thing that was happening in the American West, but closer to like the 1880s, 1890s, so a little bit later in time. The Cousins had a plan to sell the land for a large profit, doubling their money, and fast. They organized two promotional That's a hard word to say. Two promotional train tours during the summer of 1902. These tours took wealthy investors from the United States through the region in Canada. The plan was a success and large sections of land were sold to these investors, who subsequently sold it for an even higher price to settlers. So. A Rachel side note, this was not and still is not an uncommon practice. Acquiring land at reduced rates and selling it for a profit is still very common and seems to have always been common in history. But looking at this whole process kind of makes me feel sick seeing how much money these people were able to earn. But I digress. The fact that McRae and his partners made such a huge profit became a point of contention They had purchased the land through land grants from the federal government. The government then required that the partners actively seek settlers to settle the land. Many members of the House of Commons did not think McRae and his partners were keeping with this agreement. They were also upset that the group was making so much money by reselling the land. However, every government is a little sketchy, and the Canadian Minister of the Interior at the time approved of McRae and his partners selling the land for such a large profit. Again, a side note, I couldn't find any evidence of this, but um, he probably got a cut of the money. Just saying. McRae moved his family to Vancouver in 1907, intending to continue investing to become even wealthier. The first business that he invested in in Vancouver thrived its first year, but failed its second. McRae moved on to another business, which were both fisheries, and the second one was more successful. In Vancouver, McRae also became heavily involved in the lumber industry. He worked to increase the productivity of established lumber mills with the intent to produce more lumber to sell in the prairies, and that is the prairies of both Canada and the United States. While in Minnesota, McRae saw how little lumber there was available for building, but in Vancouver, there was an abundant supply. He saw an opportunity to fulfill a need, and he took it. At the onset of World War I, McRae volunteered in the army as an honorary lieutenant colonel. He was praised for his efforts during the war, especially with the purchase of supplies and services needed for the army. In 1917, he was promoted to the rank of Major General. He left the military just two months after the end of the war, and his role during the Second World War was that of fundraising. I want to take a moment to discuss Canada's impact on World War II. Here in the United States, we tend to downplay or even completely ignore Canada in relation to the global stage, which I personally think is a vicious crime. During World War One, Canada was a dominion of the United Kingdom and therefore entered the war when the United Kingdom declared war on Germany in August of 1914. But by the onset of the Second World War, the decision to enter the war and therefore fight on the global stage was up to the Canadian Parliament. The Canadian Prime Minister, William Lyon Mackenzie King, along with Parliament, were reluctant to enter the war. Part of this reluctance was due to an issue that arose during World War One in conscription. Many Canadians held issue with fighting in overseas wards. However, as tensions and conflicts rose around the world, The Canadian Parliament was ready to support the United Kingdom by August of 1939. The Prime Minister's Cabinet, Parliament and the Canadian people supported the war effort in the event that Canada's participation would be limited. The United Kingdom declared war on Germany on September 3, 1939. Unlike the First World War, this conflict was not a surprise. Canada was prepared and had already instituted rationing and censorship measures prior to declaring war against Germany on September 10, 1939. Just like the United States, Canada had been greatly affected by the Great Depression of the 1930s, and just like the United States, the impact of wartime manufacturing sped up the urbanization and industrialization of Canada. Approximately 10% of the Canadian population had enlisted in the army, with very few of them having been conscripted. Just because this war was more anticipated than the First World War, Canada's armed forces were not fully prepared. Their military was small, ill-equipped, and just generally unprepared for war, especially for war of the scope and scale that the Second World War became. Starting in 1936, the Canadian government started increasing military spending, which was generally an unpopular decision. As with many nations that were part of World War II, over the course of the war, the Canadian military grew immensely. Their navy went from only a few ships to over 400 ships, which included aircraft carriers as well as cruisers. By the end of the war, nearly 1.1 million Canadians, men and women, had served in uniform. However, most of those who served never left Canada, especially compared to Australia, New Zealand, and the United States of whom most of those who fought were fighting on foreign soil. Similar to those other three countries, some Canadians also did choose to join the British forces and did indeed fight under the British flag. Canadians fought all over the world during the war, from landing on the beaches of Normandy to the fight in the Pacific. Canada even declared war against Japan the night before the United States did, after the attack on Pearl Harbor. By 1942, Canada was enthralled in World War II, and the McRae's daughters were grown. The manor was more than the couple needed and was donated to the federal government. The estate was then used by the Federal Department of Veterans Affairs as a convalescent hospital for war veterans. In this capacity of a hospital, the manor was renamed the Shaughnessy Military Auxiliary Hospital Hospital. Shaughnessy Hospital served veterans and civilians alike of British Columbia, as well as becoming a research and training hospital. Originally opened in 1917 as a convalescent home for veterans of the First World War, in only two years the hospital had expanded its services to the public. By the end, midst of World War II, the hospital was filled with both civilians, veterans, and active military. Even though a new state-of-the-art hospital was built in 1942, Highcroft Manor was a tranquil and elegant respite for many veterans. As a hospital, the manor held 75 beds and was used in that capacity from 1942 until 1960. At that time, the use of the manor was closed, and the remaining patients were moved to the main hospital. Shaughnessy Hospital was closed for good in 1993. After the closure, the manor was abandoned for two years, with the stables being demolished during that time. In 1962, the University Women's Club of Vancouver purchased the estate to be used as their clubhouse. They took five years to restore the home and grounds with the help of many volunteers and donations. Today, the University Women's Club of Vancouver Vancouver still uses the manor as their clubhouse. They also rent the manor out for
1: events such as weddings. Now on to the paranormal. Perhaps due to the vast amount of people who spent time at Highcroft Manor, there are at least seven spirits that supposedly roam the vast estate. General McRae is thought to roam the halls, dressed in his World War I officer's uniform, still walking through the halls of his beloved home. Mrs. McRae, or Blanche, who died shortly after they sold the estate to the government, is also thought to still roam the halls. Blanche is thought to have been seen wandering the third floor as well as descending the grand staircase. However, some believe these are not all Blanche and may in fact be several different women. From the time the manor was used as a convalescent home, a nurse has been seen. Thought to have been the head nurse at the time, she is still taking care of those who inhabit the halls. There are also three different army veterans who wander the halls. The three men have been seen throughout the manor and have been nicknamed the Pranksters by the manor staff. They have been known to open and close doors as well as cause lights to flicker on and off. These three specters do not surprise me. Due to the manor's use as a convalescence hospital, it was a place where many of those veterans spent their last few years, hopefully in peace. The possible final ghost within the estate is the crying man. His name comes from the loud sobbing that he emits from a room on the lower floor of the manor. Some have even thought to have heard a baby crying from the second floor, but that sound is often attributed to the crying man. Even though most sources report there are seven ghosts, I was able to find a report of a possible eighth ghost with the most tragic story. On July 26, 1924, the body of a 22-year-old Scottish immigrant named Janet Smith was found in the basement of a nearby home with a bullet wound through her head. Initially, the death was determined to be self-inflicted. However, Smith's death sent shivers through the neighborhood, and rumors persisted that she was murdered. The rumor said that she was actually killed at Highcroft Manor during one of the many parties, but that her body was then moved to where it was found. The most convincing evidence that this might hold some truth is that Smith's ghost has been seen at Highcroft Manor, but not where she was found or her home. Perhaps she just enjoyed the manor as much as the other lasting guests, but the mystery remains unsolved. The mansion staff and the University Women's Club have noted that, even though there are many spirits within the estate, they all appear to be peaceful and even protective of the estate. Thank you for joining me. That's a wrap on High Craft Manor. Next time, we're headed even farther north to the interior of Alaska and visiting Fairbanks. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pod. I share photos and fun facts about our locations. Until next time, bye!